Alright everybody, it has been a very unusual day here for the stream. We had some technical issues and whatnot, so we are broadcasting this on Twitch. I am starting the YouTube recording, or a off recording here. There we go. So that way I'll have a copy of it stored. But, uh, welcome everyone to another developer cast here on the Game Wisdom channel, whether you're watching this live or recorded. My name is Josh Beiser, and for tonight we are going to be discussing Void Bastards. And of course, this is the latest game from Blue Manchu Games, whose previous game included the Hit Card Hunters. But join me tonight from the studio, please welcome Dean Walsh. Hello. Hey, Dean, it is great to have you on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. We've been having a whole chat for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, just the two of us here while we were waiting for hopefully YouTube to come back, and sadly it did not. But the show must always go on, and I guess that's probably a really good uh, coda for Void Bastards. You always got to <laughs> roll with the punches there. <laughs> yep, always got to find out alternative uh alternative options so uh in this case it's been twitched to youtube mm -hmm. but it is a pleasure having you on for those of you who don't know dean is in australia so it is lovely seven o'clock in the evening my time and it's going on about 10 o'clock in the morning his time right now yep yep the sun <laughs> is uh slowly breaking through the fog so mm-hmm <laughs> but uh, it is great to have you on and for those of you who missed our previous cast, I did a cast with Farbs, for who also worked on Void Bastards. I think this was four, five months ago. And we originally mm. did a cast with Joe McDonough when he was working with Blue Manchu on Card Hunters. And this was way back in the day. I think that was probably one of our longest casts we did was with uh, <laughs> Joe. Well, look, he, he's a good talker. So that's... um. <laughs> good person to chat with he uh he taught me to uh do a lot of the talking to people about the game so uh, mm -hmm. i appreciate his help mm -hmm. but yeah we certainly have a lot to talk about tonight we won't be doing too much in terms of like beginning stuff because again we had farbs only kind of went over the basics so for people watching us right now whether it is live or recorded there is the possibilities of spoilers for what we'll be discussing in terms of mechanics tips and things like that because i have some questions for dean about kind of like the decision making behind some of the designs so if you won't watch this complete or play the game completely blind then you may want to save this podcast for another time but uh as always for all of our new guests dean if you wouldn't mind could you talk a little bit about who you are and kind of like what your role is at blue man show sure thing uh so I'm the lead 3D artist, so do all of the 3D modeling and aspects of the technical art side of things. Uh, early on, I did some of the initial level design testing. My background is I've worked at quite a few larger studios, so this is the first indie team that I've actually been a part of to publish a game, uh, which hasn't been a small experimental kind of art title. So prior to this, I worked on some Star Wars games. I worked on uh, Borderlands, the pre-sequel, as an artist. And, uh, and yeah, so generally it's been much bigger teams. 
uh, focusing on environment art generally on some teams I've smaller teams I've done character art and a bit of everything else uh, but yeah this has been the first project where I've been able to do a little bit of everything that's required art wise and design wise and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it's been been a really good team for that because it's a very experienced team uh, you spoke to Fabs and mm-hmm. he's he's been doing this for years now uh, he's been doing his own games as well alongside so the captain forever series which he probably discussed with you yeah um and i know i think when i did speak with farbs and with joe that a lot of blue man chew came from irrational games back in the day yeah so like i said i i worked on borderlands the pre-sequel which was done by 2k australia uh both the pre-sequel as well as the dlc for that uh claptastic voyage uh that was at the end of 2k australia just before they closed down Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, most of the team has all worked at Irrational or 2K Australia in some capacity. I, m- my time working there didn't overlap with anyone else on the team. I was probably one of the last people at 2K Australia in, in regards to that. Um, but yeah, everyone has done their time more or less, except for I think two or three of the team who uh, were either overseas or too young to have an opportunity to work there so (laughs) (laughs) so with the when you were at uh, 2k australia for the uh, borderlands pre-sequel so like did you like did you like a major role in terms of like setting like the aesthetics or working in that kind of is that considered like comic book aesthetic or is there like a technical name for it it's it's odd with all of the stuff it's there's no established like i've got a background in fine art and there's a lot more kind of art history analysis and discussion around art movements mm-hmm. uh i think 10 years from now we'll have a good way to describe everything that everyone's working on at the moment um mm-hmm. but yeah uh borderlands is very comic booky like it's very illustrative i would say um void bastards is very comic book focused uh a lot of people think it's cell shaded it's not technically cell shaded either uh borderlands is not cell sh- it uses cell shading on a li- like certain bits but it's a saw bell renderer so it's an inline so there's all these weird technical things but uh yeah it's it's its own own thing but with borderlands i did uh a lot of that was working with the pre-established art bible from gearbox and we were of course working with gearbox at the time on that uh, however, I was really lucky with the DLC that we did. I had a lot of uh, creative input and creative freedom. And so for the DLC, I more or less designed a whole bunch of uh, crazy uh, environments and art styles which hadn't been done before in Borderlands. So but that, that was its own thing. Okay. Um, now, I'm trying to think if there's anything else before we get to more with Void Bastards. Um I guess we, again, we had a whole little discussion before the cast where we talked about, like, our favorite games and stuff along those lines. <laughs> so, yep. for people watching, I know uh, Dean right now is currently hooked on Oxygen Not Included. So, I guess, how are yes. you finding that one? Uh, I'm finding, slowly working my way through it. I'm generally a little bit apprehensive about uh, uh, early access games, mm-hmm. mainly because I don't want to play them twice i feel like i'll get burnt out on them while they're in early access and then once they're done and working 
as you'd want and balanced, uh, I'll have had enough of it. But uh, it's so close to its actual full release, I figured I couldn't wait and wanted to dive in. So yeah, it's 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 been a good kind of like turn my brain off and just try and manage my little colony of people. <laughs> yeah, and Clay has been really good with their early access track record too. Yeah, yeah, and that that's the other aspect of it where you're not as apprehensive as you would be with other titles. It's it's generally a very and especially at this stage, they're primarily doing a lot of balance like final balancing work on it by the looks of it so uh it's it's a fairly good time to get into it but yeah it's a it's a great plate spinning exercise in working out what you want to spend your time and resources on so mm-hmm. but uh i figure let's get into talking a little bit more about void bastards and again some about kind yeah. of like where the design ended up because when i spoke with far yeah. again this was like five six months ago so the game was still obviously not out <laughs> yep but uh with void bastards again for people who are tuning in for the first time whether live recorded this is a first person shooter slash roguelike where you are exploring derelicts in a very crazy nebula which happens to be filled with all matter of british slang uh, being thrown <laughs> at you along with citizens trying to kill you and you have a very lovely British uh, AI guiding you throughout it. So I guess the first question that I ask then is like, I guess what was the decision to be, I guess so heavily like British in terms of like the slang and all those conventions? Um, it's funny because that definitely wasn't one of the things when when <laughs> I first started on the project. It wasn't wasn't one of the kind of key aspects that we would discuss about it uh, a lot of that came when uh, Kara Ellison our writer came on board and we started to flesh out what the world was and I think we all kind of leaned into what that was and realized that the Douglas Adams style inspiration for what we were doing was actually yeah let's let's go all British and uh, our art director Ben Lee he lives in in the uk as well and so i think uh there was a lot of uh things that we could kind of reference back to and part of ben's background is as well and that the game ended up being a cross between 2080 and douglas adams in that regard so i think it was one of the things that we found worked and it gave us something to kind of build everything else around so we kind of lent into it more and more and more as the game progressed (laughs) But yeah, Cara Ellison, she's uh, she was doing a lot of the writing for us while she was in Scotland, and so it's um, it's got a lot of her flavor, and she also voices the pirates in the game. So <laughs> now I'm pretty sure I asked Farbs this when he was on, but uh, for to remind me for everybody watching, has like the original vision for Void Bastards changed? I guess since the beginning to where it was at 1.0. Um aspects have but it's to me it's shocking how much has remained from the original outline so uh and i think fabs has some images they they did a massive brainstorming session quite early on where they more or less just spent i think it was about two and a half days in a in a room (laughs) mapping out what they wanted the game to be and that included writing out a lot of the systems enemy types 
uh, level types, all that kind of stuff, all the systems that they wanted to uh, incorporate. And I'd say we were pretty close to almost like it, it's pretty representative of what the final game is. So from a design standpoint, it's very close to what they set out to um, put together. And then lots of balancing and adjustment to make sure that it felt right as we yeah. were going through and developing. But the biggest change was actually probably the flavor of things. So like I said, like it's much more, uh, it's got that dry British humor mm -hmm. to it and things like that earlier. And also the graphics in terms of it's, uh, it's a lot grimier and blacker and things like that. It's got, we lean into black for, for a lot of the illustrations quite a lot. Early on, it was actually a lot more hard sci-fi. And that was back when it was called uh, False Light. And so a lot of that changed as soon as Kara Ellison, the writer, came on and was able to build and, and add that flavor to things. So that's probably the main area that it shifted a lot in while we were developing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you said the art style kind of shifted from like the original or kind of grew. Because, mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say grew because it was always comic booky. It okay. was always going to be a strong comic book illustration. And early on, we were when I was first talking with Ben Lee about it, the art director. He was all of the reference points that we were talking about was very European comic inspirations, things like that. Uh, but it, like I said, it from a technical design perspective, it was more you know, or industrial design perspective. It was a lot more hard sci-fi NASA styled designs uh but as we got into it and we were kind of like this is a bureaucratic nightmare in space <laughs> is what we wanted it to be uh then you want to kind of bring in the flavor of yeah you want a ship that doesn't necessarily look like it's made by nasa it might have some nasa elements to it but it's also got filing cabinets and <laughs> office desks and wheelie chairs and all of that fun stuff that you can kind of relate to in its own way and and also just yeah getting in all the black shadows and things like that and making it all a lot uh uh cleaner and things in regards to the rendering style definitely um grew out of that and with the lighting as well mm -hmm. yeah and uh, the aesthetic of the game is definitely one of like, the strongest aspects of it especially like the enemy designs too yeah yeah they're um ben did a great job with those um I guess, what was kind of like the inspiration for the enemies? Uh, they went, went through quite a few iterations just as we were trying to work out what this world was. Uh, each of the enemy, enemy types design-wise, uh, we knew kind of systems that we wanted to interact with and, and uh, things that we wanted to test. We had a really good iterative, iterative process when it came to enemies, quite quick, so we could kind of get something prototype quite quickly get it in game see how it felt and a lot of that was down to uh john che the um, studio director where he he would have an idea <laughs> and we'd get it in that day more or less able to see how it worked we'd prove it out and then once we were happy with what it was uh ben could come in and think up his wacky ideas as to what it would actually look like and how it would interact and then we'd set up effects and ben would do quite a few of the effects and I'd do a couple of the effects here and there, but uh, it's, it's an incredibly collaborative game. So things like the Zek, which is mm. uh, you might 
be encountering at the moment yeah. and is um is a fun enemy uh for instance with the zek we that it was a really fun one to work on because it's got its shield and so the shield for it was made with farbs and i based on a quick uh little thumbnail which ben had done and we got all the shader tech working for it and the mesh and the way that it works and functions and we had that prototype with john that like that enemy type is one which is really representative of pretty much everyone on the team doing a little bit here and there on it so mm-hmm. i guess in terms of like philosophy because we were talking about this before the stream in terms mm-hmm. of trying to build like all the moving parts avoid bastards what was kind of like the team's approach to like design the enemies as in you know what kind of threats you want the player to face yeah it's it's a back and forth because like anything it's but in a systemic shooter or in a strategy kind of title like this it's about finding all those moving parts and how they interact and so the enemies can't be designed with that out also referencing and designing of the weapons without designing an understanding of the health system leaving and exiting a ship so you'll have some enemies that will follow you like janitors um the juves which are the little kind of kid enemies that run around they've got a really low attention span so they'll kind of go after you <laughs> but then they might forget <laughs> and then they'll just wander around do their own thing so all those dynamics were kind of like how can we get different behaviors so they all all have different strategies behind them uh so like the the uh scribe is another one where it it's kind of like a sniper coward character where it will take its pot shots at you and then just piss off and then you have to try and find it if you actually want to kill it or you just lock the door and just avoid it yeah. Uh, so yeah in terms of designing all the enemies, you're definitely looking at all of, is there a weapon, which is a really good uh, strategy for them. The Zek's a really good example. A lot of people are like, how, how do I deal with them? Well, there's three different weapons that might work quite well or different strategies. Uh, so you might get the enemy in. And with a lot of these, we'd get an enemy in. We'd have a weapon that we were also working on at the time. And then we might tweak it to make it more effective or less effective and things like that. So it, as a game, it's been a really interesting design lesson for me uh, because there is so much experience on the team and there's been a lot of referencing of past projects. So with John's experience on System Shock 2, a lot of it is kind of how they went about designing enemies for that and his, based on his experiences and ideas that he's had and then reinterpreting them for this in a different way and and yeah it's nothing exists on its own everything interacts with one another so we always have to be mindful of that um, yeah and it sounds like you're describing the enemies in the relation to the weapons that obviously the yep. weapons had a major role in this kind of game and that's one of the things yep. that we see as you said in very like systemic or system-based shooter something like prey as well prey 2016 yep that yeah, yeah. Every weapon has to have... It's not just a function of damage. You know, I'm going to have a rocket launcher or a sniper rifle. They have to have (laughs) some kind of a purpose in the world, which by extension means a purpose against a specific enemy or strategy. Yep. Yeah, and and I think, uh, I mean, just as a real top-down, as well as that, it's one of the big aspects of our game are the ships, the wrecks that you are encountering and exploring and and 
trying to find and collect the parts that you need and the resources that you need, that's such a huge aspect of it. They exist almost as their own characters. So certain enemies are easier to combat on yes. different types of ships as well. <laughs> Uh, and then also things like the security system. The security system is its own system where you've got cameras, you've got mm -hmm. security robots, turrets, uh, the gun points and the boom points, Ugh. things like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm having some pain the, right now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's... And, it, and that's, again, one of those things where what do you prioritize? Is that something where, and again, you can craft things to make dealing with those a little bit easier or to just make them help you out as well so if that's something you're focusing on i mean uh on a ship if you can subvert the security or even finding ships from the star map because you get the traits mm -hmm. if that's something that you prioritize going onto a ship with subverted security mm. it's great <laughs> yeah oh yeah <laughs> it that's it very yeah yeah those um, are the vacations when i get that ship popping exactly mm. yeah yeah yeah, you, those are the ones where you're like, hey, I'm not going to miss miss out on that. That's no. um, good value. And like the the shit that's been like my bane has been the filing ship, where there's that, always that, that yep. one very big room right at the start, <laughs> and that's yep. where we were talking before about like how RNG screwed me. That's why I got dark pirates and like two turrets in that room all at the same time. I like when I'm like. Yeah, we're done here. Like there, there is nothing that's getting me through this. Is that is that the waiting room, the long thin one? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a little death carousel. That yeah, one. Yeah, pretty so, much. Uh, now, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Now speaking about the ships, one thing that I wanted to point out, and I want to bring up everyone watching, is that the ships themselves are hard coded in terms of their blueprint. Like it's not like they're being procedurally generated. And that is a different touch from, like, other procedural roguelike-based games where they'll give you, you know, all manner of crazy ship layouts. And hmm. I was just wondering, what was a, a design decision to keep them fixed as opposed to, you know, randomizing or changing that up? Uh, early on, we were kind of talking about it, and we did some testing and, and the like with, with uh, procedural generation for those things. Uh the consensus that we kind of came to and for me the touchstone that i had when i was talking about it originally on the team was i liked the idea that you could learn mm -hmm. learn the layout just like anything else you, you had a certain level of unexpected nature and and already it's if you go into a ship and you've got like you said lights out turrets all these kinds of things mm -hmm. if you've then got some completely wacky layout that you've mm -hmm. never encountered and it's just a maze that's going to make it that much harder uh it's definitely something like it's a really interesting aspect to it i think um there's been some really good games that do fantastic uh procedural generated levels but what we wanted and what we felt with the team was we wanted the handcrafted aspect to it where we could have a lot more uh manual input as to what those ship layouts were keep a logic so between the different organizations as well each organization has kind of a different theming to the way that the ships are laid out but then we can still get a lot of that random nature on a per room level or per corridor level as well where there's certain aspects which will change dynamics uh each time you encounter that ship and then you've got other things as well door states will be randomized 
um, but layouts to certain rooms will change quite a bit. Yeah. So so we, we kind of felt a little bit here and a little bit there gave us the benefit to that. And a lot of the testing for the randomization as well, uh, some early on, some of the stuff that I was doing was very much uh, focused on the visual randomization. People didn't really notice that. They'd walk into a room and it was the big changes which people notice and people want to deal with. Yeah. So we definitely focused on that. And if things randomize as well, it needs to have impact on player decision and choice. So things like crawl spaces are, are a really good example of that. If you see a crawl space, it's like it's generally a shortcut and it's a good escape, but it's something which you're rewarded for for looking around the environment. Um, and it's not always the same. So. Mm-hmm. And that's always the risk or the uh, challenge of having random or procedural elements in terms of yeah. just how much they actually impact what the player is doing. Yeah, I think, uh, and I was actually having a chat with some developers last night about this. Uh, they're, they're investigating doing some procedural generation for their levels at the moment. And I think it's something which, especially on a first-person uh, title, mm-hmm. there's a lot of aspects to it. Procedural generation can be done really, really well, but I think people underestimate just how much effort you need to put into it to do it well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you can do it, uh, and I think some people, it's it's not overly complicated to do it. To do it well is another question because uh, from my perspective, if you're doing that, then you need to work out an incredibly complex set of rules to equate it to what would be a handcrafted level because all those decisions and choices that you make when you're generating it by hand, you need to replicate those decisions and choices in your procedural system. Yep. So... And like you, yep, as you said, as any developer watching and certainly attest to, it is very hard to do procedural generation right. It's very easy to mess mm. it up, but yeah, you have to be well. Real. Well, I think yep. the way I was talking about it to um to an old student of mine was this idea that if you're doing procedural generation, a the first place to start is to actually hand build anyway, mm-hmm. uh, because you need to generally do that and reverse engineer all of your rule sets Mm -hmm. for the procedural generation from that. So it can add a a lot of time and there's other ways to do it really well where you can use it as a stepping stone to then hand place or hand edit. So you can actually have a procedural system which you can then manually adjust a couple of seeds from. So you're using it to kind of speed up your generation process. Things like that I think are quite helpful. Um, But some of our friends in Canberra as well, they did... um, City of Brass, if you've seen that, yeah. Uh, so, and that they, they did, they they had all those challenges because they they were doing a full procedural kind of mm-hmm. system, um, and for different things it works, different things it doesn't. Uh, it was just a choice that I think most of the team was really really quite confident with. For us, was that we wanted to manually have that control over things, and um, I, like I was saying, I, I kind of thought about it like an old first person multiplayer game where i would play it on single player with bots that was kind of the experience i had with it like that's how i used to play unreal tournament a lot and it was nice because and now when i play play void bastards you can learn layouts you know shortcuts and and um there's definitely something to that i think mm-hmm. yep yeah, and like with a lot of the procedural generation that we've seen in many titles i try to push for it that it doesn't really like seem to change what you're doing mm-hmm. from level to level but 
Yeah. I like what you just said about having to build something handmade first to kind of mm. figure out, again, like the foundation or the baseline for where your level should be. Because I think that's a very big misconception a lot of people have about procedural generation that it's just, let's just throw everything in like a blender, you know, mix it up, throw it in, here's your level. And yep. like some of like yeah. the very worst games, like unfortunately do that, where the levels just feel like a MC Escher nightmare. You know, you go up to a stair that leads to another stair that leads to a dead a dead end, and there's just nothing for the player really associate to. Mm. And like, I guess I'm I'm wondering if you would agree with this, Dean, that like the very best procedural generation, it almost feels like a handcrafted level. Like you almost get to that level of detail. Yeah, I mean that's what you want out of it. You don't, you don't, unless you've got a game where that's specifically mm-hmm. what you're going for. Um, you're trying to replicate what would be manually done anyway. So, that, and that's why I said uh, it is a good starting point generally to kind of hand build something and then break it down from there, mm-hmm. because if there's so many, and I come come at that a lot from a visual standpoint. So as a as an artist, I think um, bigger titles as well are really pushing towards procedural generation just to assist with uh, content creation. Yeah, it, it is a it, for the amount of content we're making now, uh, and that's kind of where we get some savings from as well uh, to create that amount of content to proceduralize some of it for for artists is useful, but all of it's about reverse engineering how you would do it if you were manually creating it. So for a room, if you're architecturally just trying to work out how you procedurally generate a room, you just have to work out what those rules so are. So visually, it's like it has to have a door, it has to have a window. Well, design is just as important as that. So it has to have a door which has this much clearance either side and allows for cover from these angles and all of that stuff. It's... It is a behemoth of a task if you're trying to do it, and I think um, 2D is one thing. 3D, 3D is quite another, another mm. matter for it. Oh yes, it's why I don't think we've seen like the uh, 3D equivalent like Spelunky yet. Like Spelunky. Well, okay. and that's I think City of Brass is probably the closest closest to that. But again, it's it's breaking it down into manageable chunks. Yeah, I think there's a there's a granular aspect to procedural generation that if you get too granular you're gonna go insane (laughs) like if you if everything that you're building in that world is made (laughs) out of such small components that are randomly put together it's hugely time consuming um Mm -hmm. but if you can kind of make it manageable like you're uh designing tile sets and things like that and then fitting them together that's something which is a little bit more uh feasible Mm -hmm. yeah I have a developer regular who, if he was watching this right now, he would probably be like nodding his head excitedly <laughs> in agreement. But yeah, and that's and that's one of like the major points about like roguelikes as well. That the majority of the roguelikes that we've played or this decade have all had procedural generation to some extent. Mm. But there's still that very wide line I feel between you know really good and really bad examples. Hmm. It's it's a really tough one as well. I think it makes so much sense to me from just a, for indies, and I think it's why indies have been exploring procedural content much more than other developers and and the like, is because content to that you can get out of it, is, you, you can 
it's very uh it's a very good way to build a larger game for people um but it's a it's a cost benefit analysis and it's also uh, for, for us, we did a lot of it in regards to placement and randomization for interaction with things. But yeah, it's how much of it you want to do, how much you want to commit to it for is, is a big question. Yep. Now, um, one question that I had for you, Dean, before we kind of move into another topic, uh, going yep. back to the enemy design. So I just want to ask, what was like yep. your favorite enemy, whether from an aesthetic, a design or both standpoint? Um, I do like the Zex. Aesthetically, they've got some very interesting things. I think uh, they were one of the later enemies that was designed. They've got a really nice... Um, their silhouette changes quite a bit when they go between their states because all of our enemies have like their idle states yeah. and then their enraged <laughs> states. Uh, and they're a really fun one for that. Um, and the shield, I think, just looks really cool and different. Like They've got neat things like that. But... I do like um, the sec pots as well are fun um, just because I, I got to model them as well. So, <laughs> uh, and yeah, they, the way that they all interact is kind of interesting and you've got uh, all of them. There's aspects of all the enemies. I really, really do like from the tourists kicking a tourist and having it explode <laughs> is, is a fun thing to do. So yeah, um, all, all good value. And we were very lucky to get some, um, really interesting voice actors on board to actually provide a lot of their their barks, which I'm sure you're uh, very familiar with at this point of the game. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm not sure I, if we, you mentioned this on stream, this was during our pre-stream, but you're the writer who came on. She also did the voice acting for the pirates as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Kara Ellison's the, the pirates in the game. <laughs> uh, I think uh, this is possibly... Maybe just her second voice acting role in a game. She was also a voice in Assault Android Cactus. Oh. Um, but yeah, she's a, and she's also a writer on um, the new Vampire Masquerade game. Nice. So, should be interesting. <laughs> um, now, uh, getting back to the design then, I do have a few design questions and some of the issues that I ran into that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But yep. uh, before we get there, I guess a few more just general questions regarding the design. And for anybody watching this live right now, if you have any questions for Dean, uh, feel free to leave them in the chat and we'll get to them. But yep. um, we kind of touched on this a few minutes ago regarding the weapon designs and design the various roles yep. and rules around them. I guess... What was like the general approach? Like again, we already talked about general approach to enemy design, but how did the team settle on what weapons? Because again, there's a very wide assort assortment beyond just your standard pistol. You have the bouncer, you have that rifter that I thought was I finally got to use last night, which is a whole lot of fun on a uh, Zek. Yep, yep. Uh, the rifter is one of my favorites. Um... I think with the weapon design, again, a lot of that was uh, laid out in the very first kind of uh, hefty design meeting that everyone had for the project and planning meeting with what ended up being, I think it was something like 10 whiteboards filled of content. <laughs> uh, but a lot of it was just mapping out what we felt would be the right amount of content for it. We were pretty close with those estimates. And we knew kind of how many roles we wanted to fill with it. And so 
with a game like this, you've got some of your standards that you at least start with. You're kind of like, all right, well, you, a pistol. <laughs> uh, let's let's have some of these starting points. And we've got three slots that we uh, ended up putting everything into as well. So I think early on with the game, uh, the very original prototype had two slots that, that we used. Um, I th- yeah, I think it was just two slots. And so tools, which is the third slot, was added after that because we liked the idea of having three weapons means that you've got a little bit more variety as to how you can let them interact with one another. But once we got all those kind of the idea that you've got these three systems in place, you've got all these weapon types from there, it really was just, we want something which is your really big damage, your targeted damage, your kind of more special optimized kind of thing. And just a lot of prototyping really a lot of ideas. Not everything was the exact way that we intended for it to work. The Rifter is a really good example of that. So the original intention for the Rifter was that it would almost push an enemy. So it would just kind of move them back kind of three squares in the world, if you think about it like that. Um, And we we played the game with that for about a week or so, and it just wasn't that interesting. It didn't didn't give you many opportunities with other enemies. Um, It kind of pushed them back and just stunned them a little bit. Wasn't that, wasn't that engaging. Um, so the idea of having it vacuum up enemies and allow you to put them back in the world elsewhere just gave you a lot more mm-hmm. decisions that you could make with it, which is something which um, really cool uh, gameplay interactions emerged from that, uh, which was great. And what you just said regarding going from having two selections to three, I thought that was yeah. very interesting because w- one of the little issues I was running into, or at least I wanted to talk to you about, was the fact that you could only choose from three items to take into a derelict yep. at a time. Because as everybody, if you play the game, knows, you get quite a lot of tools. So mm. I guess what kind of playtesting or what was like the decisions behind you? Know, how many, I guess, toys do you give the player to play with at a single time? One of the early ideas with the game, and I think it's always been a kind of a goal for it when we've been discussing it, and I think Fabs might have uh, mentioned this last time, was the idea of making sure that the we wanted the player to feel hungry. Uh, and that's something which I think on past games, some of the team members tried to do at bigger studios, and, and there's, you don't have as much freedom to, I guess, make the player feel as hungry or as uncomfortable as we're, we're able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that was we really wanted to encourage players to rotate through weapons. We didn't want people to get stagnate with like their loadout choices. Uh, and so one of the ways to do that was limit, limit the weapons that you have, but then also it comes down to ammo and things like that. And I think we've been pretty happy with, from a lot of our play testing, we did a lot of uh, focus testing that I was a part of where we'd more or less get people in and rotate them through and we sent uh, keys out to people that we um, we knew to get feedback on weapons. And during that phase, we were collecting a lot of analytics of people's play styles and, and resource use and things like that. And there was a lot of fine-tuning just to make sure that people were rotating through weapons and options and things like that. And yes, they're using weapons that I think will be a good counter to an enemy, but they're also using this weapon that maybe they used once and it wasn't as effective against a certain enemy type, but they've got quite a bit of ammo for it. 
they're going onto a ship uh, and they're like, ah, I'll just take this because I've got more ammo. They're hungry and they want to use the most out of it. And then hopefully on that ship, they're going to encounter a new way to use that weapon. And it will encourage them to use it more in the future as well. And that's what happened to me with the uh, germ spiker. That Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a good example for that, actually. Because the same thing happened to me while we were testing. (laughs) Yeah, like you think, Um, oh, you know, it does poison damage. Wow, you know, that sounds amazing. Until you realize it can take out a Zek from behind. Or it can just walk in a room snap like five or six of them off, close that door, you know those five or six enemies are now guaranteed to die. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really good one. And I think um, it it went through quite a bit of just balancing and adjustments and things like that in regards to amount of damage, uh, advantages that it had. It was also one of the very first weapons we had uh, in the game. I think the very first prototype that i was playing of the game just to give you an idea of what weapons we had we had our pistol we had our stapler slash shotgun we had a grenade a bomb which was just a bigger version of the grenade more or less um and we had the poison dart gun so that that was the original lineup of weapons that you can kind of rotate through and and uh, play around with um, another one which was really nice in that regard was the bomb. It changed from just being a really powerful explosive to, as you would have encountered, the cluster flak, which is an explosive. It's a explosive which more or less sets out a bunch of smaller mm-hmm. bomblets which use physics to bounce around a room, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot more chaotic to deal with. <laughs> so, um, and. Uh, with like, and going back to what you said a few minutes ago, because I mean, this is also kind of uh, one of the comments in the chat as well about making the yep. player feel hungry. And yep. this is, I think, a very interesting aspect because there's that push and pull, and we see this in a lot of games, not just in roguelikes, of, I guess, how, I'm not sure if punishing would be the right word. But, mm. you know, how much do you, you know, want to put pressure on the player? Um, like, probably like another really good example would be the whole Dark Souls franchise or Souls likes yeah. in general. And yep. it's a very, I think, thin line you have to walk when it comes to this. Because if you make things too easy, then, like, as, you, as we were just talking about with, like, the gun examples, nobody's going to choose any other weapon. You know, my pistol yep. does 50 points of damage, it kills everything. Why should I switch to this rinky-dinky uh, poison dart? But yep. if you make it too punishing, then it runs into that case of, you know, the player is just getting hammered, and there's not much they can do to avoid it. Yeah, I think... Uh it is a really tough one and people approach games so differently. Uh, I think people have different uh, reads on situations that you just can't anticipate really. So it's about options. Uh, Dark Souls is a really interesting one because for me, I've, I've tried it multiple times and I've kind of bounced off just because I understand where the difficulty lies. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of something that either at the time I'm not ready to invest in as much as I want to, uh, but I understand kind of what that game is and I really like 
what it offers. Mm-hmm. I think for us, a lot of the difficulty that we present as well, the, the strategy layer to me is what makes it, it just like changes it up a little bit because something else that you get with Void Bastards is on something like the star map. And we, and we were talking about this uh, before we went live mm-hmm. and just the idea of choice. And I think player agency where players can set their own objectives can set the challenge that they're kind of willing to take. It's it's tough because not every game does that. Uh, and I think that's probably the hardest thing that I've seen when we're doing focus testing and things like that. We've got a first-person shooter, which is about player agency. Most first-person sh- shooters aren't about letting the player choose what they want to do. There's this idea that you go in, you clear a room, you go into the next room, you clear a room. It's what a lot of people playing first-person shooters have been conditioned to do. Oh, yeah. And the biggest challenge for us was, and the start of the game, we really try and let people know, killing an enemy is not always the best tactic. It's generally not a good tactic, actually, because you're wasting ammo if you don't need Hmm. to use it. And you're not getting that much out of it other than probably losing a bit of health and losing some ammo. So are there other ways around it? Can you lock them in a room? Things like that. Um, so there are the options. There's there's the ways that we kind of present it for players to risk and reward. Uh, they can look at ships, and if it's got enemies that they don't really like, they can just <laughs> skip that ship. Uh, I've been is, doing that one a lot on hard difficulty. <laughs> is a viable option, and yeah, on hard, you you, and I think where the game comes into its own is when people are having to make those choices. Uh, there's a learning curve to that though, yeah. like like any game. But I think one, once you get an understanding of what it's about, and it, I, I get this with most games, it's it's that initial bit of uncertainty when you're not sure what's expected of you <laughs> is always really unsettling with a new game. Yeah. Um, and then to challenge that with just difficulty in general. And, and we've got a difficulty slider as well so that if, if people find that those things are a bit much, they can change it dynamically as well, uh, which I think um, for, for certain people, if that's what they want, great. I think people are much more likely to slide a difficulty slider down than they are to yeah. mid-game yeah. slide it up. I think that's a that's another tough one, which has its own challenges. Uh, I'm not sure what the solutions are with that, but um, yeah. yeah. like The only times I would make something harder is if I knew that there was an actual reward or some kind of benefit to playing the game at that level yeah yeah um yeah it's definitely definitely a complex thing to communicate because everyone is so different i think um yeah yeah, there's been i mean lots of interesting discussion on these things but uh everyone has a different approach to things most of our difficulty uh differences come in regards to resources so the amount of resources you get is adjusted by the slider difficulty and that also relates to things like oxygen which you use while you're navigating ships which is is a a soft limiter um, on Mm. that experience yeah and uh, one thing uh, to clarify for people watching this we were talking about this before the stream that void bastards hard difficulty was originally was going to be the normal difficulty like when you guys are like play testing it and doing it yeah, it's more or less what we uh, developed the game around internally. Because, of course, for the majority of the game when we were developing, 
we only had a single difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just the game. That was what we were building around and we were tweaking and adjusting and balancing things to our own play experience. And we're not, by all means, I think now that we've released the game, the community are doing crazy challenges, which no one on the team would have been able to do uh, just because they're better gamers uh, than some of us. But we had sunk hundreds of hours into the game. So if you're balancing against that, we understood after we'd, been balancing like that for a couple of years when we when we started giving the game to newer people who hadn't been playing along with us uh we realized yeah this is this is pretty hard so we'll make that the hard difficulty we'll roll back a couple of things so there's a little bit more of that um a little bit more padding in the player experience so they've got a little bit more choice and that that will be the normal because i think that that is that optimal where there's still if you're really coming into it new you can take a lot more risks you're not as uh, stressed, <laughs> maybe. Um, but then also having having easier as well. If you're not as familiar with these kinds of systems or this type of game, you can have that where it... And still, there's people who will play on, on our easier difficulty and they're still going to be getting a very similar experience yep. where they're hung, hungry and trying to get ammo because to take out any enemy, rather than three shots or like two headshots or something, mm-hmm. they're still taking like two clips of ammo to take down an enemy. So it does balance out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, going back to a comment from a few minutes ago, and this is probably, again, like one of the more polarizing aspects of Void Bastards is uh, the get in, get out kind of mentality for designing these derelicts. Because as we've talked about, and for people who haven't played the game yet, to clarify for, again, you have a hard limit of what you can do inside each derelict. It's not like, as you said, like typical first-person shooter design is I am going to clear every single room, go in every single spot. I will, you know, get that map 100% of the way done, and then we move <laughs> on to the next. You can't do that in yeah. Boy Bastards for several reasons. One, you don't have all the resources to do that. Two, you have the portal so enemies can spawn in every few minutes. And as we were just saying, you have an auction limit. Some ships yep. can resupply your oxygen. Other ones, no, there is no oxygen resupply. So if you yeah. run out, <laughs> yeah, you need to be running that way to the exit fast. Yeah, yeah, we've got a, I think it's definitely the majority do have oxygen terminals, but there's the one or two that we've got as uh, special ships that don't have them. Mm-hmm. And you definitely notice it when you're playing on hard where oxygen is a lot more <laughs> or in, a lot more of an impact or um, in my case i didn't know that the ship didn't have any auction i was like yeah. running out like oh there's only 50 cents let me find the auction room I, oh yeah, as a developer this has been one of the most uh, fun games to watch people play on twitch and, and the mm-hmm. like because and when we've been focus testing as well because uh when you see that happen and you see someone's <laughs> response of like uh you see everything flood through their mind of like, okay, <laughs> their life flashes there for us. <laughs> yeah, there's there's this pause, and and it is it's it's a really interesting moment in kind of game design and kind of things like that because you see on their face just it's that crazy mathematical kind of all right, what do I need to do now? What do I need to do? And it it's like a high stress, but then also high reward scenario because once someone works that out and they're either like. I've just got to go. Like, I, I can't continue. I've got to go mm-hmm. right now. It 
it is quite when you see someone make that choice it's like no no they've made that choice and that's that's kind of they've seen that that's the only viable path for them but mm-hmm. i think um on the team uh we all play it very very differently we all make fun of the fact that all of us have different approaches to the game <laughs> uh i'm I, we, I think we can, we see the game as a bit of a spectrum where you've got like on one end the person who uh, is running, just getting what they need, probably going through like a hundred characters to finish the game. Yeah. And then you've got on the other end of that scale, maybe myself, uh, who gets mocked relentlessly by <laughs> Jay, who is the one killing half a million prisoners. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I am a completionist. I'm a real I'm really bad with this in most games and incredibly compulsive where if I see something I'll pick it up and if there's something there I I'm going to try and pick up everything and yeah. open up every container. Mm-hmm. So at first on the project, it seems like it's quite at odds with the way I play it. At the same time it is quite playable like that. You it actually is just a different challenge mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I focus on things like getting more oxygen. I focus on locking rooms which have rifts in them because I want to make sure that enemies don't come out while I'm yeah. still pick- picking up batteries <laughs> off the ground, uh, <laughs> which is a really bad use of my time. But I get through the game. I, get, I craft everything. I do it with minimal casualties. Uh, it's its own separate approach to it. So, yeah, it's... but. But I love the fact that it makes me reassess my life choices because <laughs> I think for me I'm at the basically the grinder strategy. You just keep throwing meat into the grinder and eventually we'll yeah. win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that's Jay's approach. I think because uh, I mean we've all played through the game so many times, and I think it's another benefit of having such a small team mm-hmm. who's so engaged with the project, and we're all doing our own testing at different points. So everyone on the game has finished it multiple, multiple times at different iterations and mm. we'll sit down and discuss it afterwards. And and with a lot of that, it's this thing of like, we'll sit down one morning and we're like, all right, we've got the new build, everyone, let's see how how quickly we can get through it. Mm. And everyone's like, Jay's like done at lunchtime. He's like, yep, done, sweet. <laughs> it's easy. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then like two days later, I'm like, yep, I'm done, but I did build everything. And I didn't die, so yeah, it's uh, it's up to you. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up there, I'm trying to, I think I lost my train of thought there with all the uh, dying uh, remem- <laughs> <laughs> remindings. Um, I guess uh, going back again to kind of again like, oh, and I remember uh, one thing that I thought was very smart as we were just talking about kind of the mental gymnastics you have to do while you're playing this game. That one thing I thought was very subtle that now I think is very brilliant is the fact that you have the main map or the full map you can bring up and it completely pauses the game while that is up. And like when I was playing it or like before this, I was saying, eh, that's not that big of a deal. But as we're sitting here thinking about all the potential strategy and again, how things can go terribly, terribly wrong, it is a very important thing to have. And again, as a way of kind of counterbalancing some of the difficulty or some of like the chaoticness of the game yeah it can be a, it can be really exhausting so another that that is something which changed uh the very first prototype that i played uh when you bu- pulled up the ship's map it did not pause the game mm. uh and that was incredibly stressful because yeah. when you got those uh encounters like 
I've got no oxygen left. I need to either get out or I need to find oxygen. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want is when you've got the map up at the same time, having a timer on that decision-making process. So, and I think the game is so... What works best about Void Bastards is the strategy, is the choices that you make. And so, allowing you to have that same planning and strategy layer that you experience on the star map, having a having aspects of that when you're in the ship as well, of looking at the layout, pausing the game, and allowing you to create a strategy, I think is, is really valuable to players. And it's something where uh, watching streamers as well, uh, and when we were doing focus testing, it's when it's at its best. When someone loads into a new ship, you pull up the entire map and you create a plan for what you're going to do. Yeah. Someone's there and they're like, I'm going to go to the bridge because I don't know where the items might be. I haven't worked out the logic to this ship yet. That's going to help me. Or it might be, I'm really low on health. And if I go to the ship, I can uh, spend some merits and get the ship's map, which has enemies on it. Because I'm so low on health, I want to avoid even like facing any of them because I might die. So yeah. that's that's the only way that I think I'll be able to do it. So things like that work really, really well. And the map map is a really nice strategy layer to that. But uh, yeah, we, we tried it without that. And um, I think we all agreed that it was just too much, too stressful. And even early prototypes as well, because we kind of got certain aspects of the game working before others in a, in a full context. The very first prototype had the first person aspect laid out and we had we were rotating through just i think it was like two ships or maybe three ships we had which were really really basic gray boxes that uh farbs had built and so we had those ships and it was just about rotating and checking the resource system how that felt but the star map aspect to it was kind of faked and we just had kind of three ships that you just click on rather than having a full map that you were navigating and things like that the game at that point was incredibly stressful because you were more like, if you imagine what the, the final game is, but just back to backing ships without anything to break it up, it just exhausted you as a player. Yeah. So all those secondary layers actually add these kind of downtimes where you can cool regroup down, your yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Cause, cause it, it can get incredibly stressful where, uh, compressing what would be a lot of gameplay in say a standard first person title we're compressing it into quite a small period of time and so that that is actually really exhausting <laughs> yeah um, and like we said like, even like the absolute biggest derelicts in the game that's still like again you're limited by your auctions that's maybe like three yeah. to four minutes of solid gameplay yeah I mean I think on hard if if you get your full oxygen tanks, you get oxygen upgrades and stuff like that. Even on hard, it stretches out to, I think it's 10 minutes or something like that. You can get on some of them, mm. um, 10 or 12 minutes. Because you can't, if you kind of time and, because you can authorize oh, yeah. an oxygen then, tank as well, and that will extend your, your oxygen again. Yeah. So it can, can go for quite a bit. But we, uh, I mean, again, prototyping early on when we were first exploring ship layouts and the like, we did a bit of everything. So uh, I think on the team, there's a real consensus and it's an old irrational approach to things of kind of do the extreme version of it first because it's quicker 
and you can wind back from there rather than kind of doing lots of really small iterative changes to something uh it's often easier to explore the extreme idea first and we did a lot of that with the level layouts and part of that was also just finding what worked and was fun so we explored doing like 30 minute ships 45 minute ships and it was it it didn't work with the flow of the game at all um they were interesting in their own way because we were like oh maybe this is like something it just it was good to explore and we had different scales of ships and kind of we did a maze ship which was just like a hedge maze that was terrible uh yeah i think it was really valuable when we were testing those things um but it came a long way now, one thing that I wasn't thinking about until you were just talking, Dean, uh, was about the merits and being able to yep. basically uh, use those systems or get the administration work done. And, like, that's another very interesting aspect of Void Bastards. Like, for what I've been playing, I was mainly using them to get, like, the bonus treasures. Because if you find a locked yep. container, you can get a bonus good value. part. Yeah. Yep. But as you were describing, and as... For people who play the game, no, you can also use them for other functions. Like you, like uh, at the helm, you can turn on enemy vision or enemy locations on the map. One of the ones that I really like, that I really need to keep doing more of, is turning off security because that was a very <laughs> the first time. Like I, yeah. I, I remember like the bot was chasing. I'm like, oh my god, this is going to be so annoying. These cameras and turns. I go to the security column says turn off security. I'm like. It couldn't be that easy. I had to play when you started us all like, oh, hey, this isn't yeah. so bad now. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, last night we had a local developer meetup in Canberra um, and and I had the game there and, and had some locals playing it. And uh, it's funny because uh, you get the ships as well. One of the ship traits is uh, free authentication on oh, any of yes. those terminals, which is a great trait. Because it's, again, another freebie ship of like, yeah, sweet. Uh, but it's also a really good ship where people uh, often try things that they otherwise wouldn't. And so it, it's a funny one where a lot of people who get that ship trait after the after that ship, they'll play ships very differently yeah. because they'll do things like they'll be like, actually uh, spending a couple of merits on the security system to disable it permanently is really good value. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to do more of that. Or I might find out enemy locations more often because that that's more useful so yeah i mean as an economy i think um i think the team has a lot of experience just from card hunter so farbs and and john had so much kind of uh management of all those systems on on that project that for for this there was a real understanding of having because you've also got your materials as well so your raw materials like bio and slag yep. and stuff like that that you can use to craft. You've got this real push and pull of all of your systems and all of your resources. Merits are a really good one where, yeah, you, you can use them for containers. Generally, it's a really good value for money in terms of if I spend these, I'll, I'll get something back. But then there's lots of other little areas. So secure doors, which are the security doors, which can't be uh, used by security bots and stuff like that. They've got a very low cost to them. So you can use them as well um but then you've also got the shop which is a really nice way to balance out those economies because if you have too many merits you can there's always something else that you want so yeah. so and especially getting a game like void bastards that is so resource dependent on what your options are 
And this goes back to what we were saying earlier with trying to mix up the various weapon usage. And I think we had this conversation during the pre-stream where you have to be really, like, it's very tricky sometimes to teach the player a new ability or a new crazy strategy. Because, like you said, like, with the uh, poison dart, the first time a player could use that, they may use it on the wrong enemy, like the patient. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they'll be like, I'm never <laughs> going to use one. this again. Like, this yep. weapon sucks. Like, I've seen this happen many times in other roguelikes. I remember uh, both Dungeons of Dreadmore and Enter the Gungeon had some of these risk-reward elements to it, where the first time I use it, I get a completely horrible effect. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to do this again because I won't risk it. But... Yep. What if th- my bad roll is a one out of seven chance, and the other six times could have been this amazing perk that could have made the game so much easier? Yeah, it's it's a. I mean, with something like this, you look at how bigger budget games do it, and I think it's something which, at the same time, players are at least for me just as frustrated by where because you can have that beautiful moment where it just works, and and I think. Um, <laughs> I've been really surprised because we do have so much random stuff in Void Bastards, watching people play it and just see all those little bits come together and someone gets more or less the experience that is like the ultimate that we could have hoped for. And to actually see it work, <laughs> you're like, okay, that, that's really nice. That, that's great. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely going to, as soon as you have anything which has randomization in it, you can also get a horrible experience. So you can try and lessen that as much as possible. But introducing people to systems is a really tough one, especially yep. when you've got so many systems. And and one of the other things as well is when you've got lots of systems, the interactions, you can't introduce people to every single interaction because, quite frankly, we have not anticipated every single interaction. So there's a lot of stuff that since we've launched, we've seen people doing stuff that we didn't even think of. And there will be strategies that people have come up with post-launch that are really good strategies. And <laughs> we didn't think of them. But... I think when you look at bigger games mm-hmm. and I've had this on a couple of like bigger like open world games recently that I've played where you spend four hours getting introduced to that game because they're introducing you to, by hand to every single mm-hmm. system, to every single weapon, trying to make sure that you have used it in some, the way that it was intended. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people, they're happy to go through that. I think we've, a lot of us, though, we've done it so many times now that it's quite fatiguing. And I think mm-hmm. some of the interest in a lot of these smaller indie games, which are trying these really different things, is A, it's about your own experience, but B, there's a certain quality to a community exploring and finding these things and, and discussing them. Like uh, um, It's like kind of like the, the appeal of learning by doing instead of yeah, you know, saying they're yeah. reading a manual for the an hour or so or something like that yeah i think exploration and testing and and sometimes and for me it's definitely i i get a real reward like something something i found what i think i was when i was doing a one of the gameplay videos we did kind of like a 10 minute 12 minute video of the game early on before we'd released uh and again most of the team made fun of me because in the video i was picking up everything and opening every container uh but one of the things I did, and it was only when I was recording that video, I there was a, tar- a gunpoint there which was shooting me. Mm-hmm. And I had the rifter 
but I didn't have the zapper on me as the tool. And normally if I've got a gunpoint shooting me, I'm going to yeah. pull out my zapper and stun it and maybe uh, authorize it so it's helping me or something like that. But I didn't have that. And it was the first time I'd, I'd encountered this kind of scenario and I had the rifter in my hand and I'm like, all right, I'll rift it up. Normally in that case, I might pop it into like an air, an unused airlock or something like that. So it's out of the way and not going to attack mm-hmm. me. But in this, this instance, in the next room I walked into, there was an electrical hazard on the ground. So an electrical cable mm-hmm. whipping around and, and uh, it will stun enemies. And I was like, great, I'll just drop the turret there and be done with it. Like that's a, that was something which only emerged at that point. If, if you take all those nice experiences, I think, and try and manually make sure that someone experiences them, mm-hmm. you've got the risk of fatigue a of people just not being interested in it but b there is a really nice aspect to discovering it yourself and i think it it means that there's there's these little things that people can discuss and talk about and uh have different experiences that they can share about it and then you can try it as well you want to avoid the terrible experiences but i think sometimes hiding some of those really nice interactions or or just not uh yelling it from the rooftops can have its benefits as well. Yep. And it was one of the things I think a lot of people really liked about Zelda Breath of the Wild there. That yeah. it gave you like that opening, you know, like 30 minutes or so tutorial, and then it was like, okay, here, go. You know, do whatever the hell you want. Here, yeah. there's the world. I, do something in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the way that they did that. And it was so refreshing to see yeah. such a big title uh, have, have the guts, really. Because yeah. it, it, it's a very scary thing to do to the player. Mm-hmm. And that was the other point. Like, it's always risky when you let the player have complete control. Because if the player, I think that's one of those other very weird things. Like, I think it depends on what the player's mindset is going into that title. Like, if they want, you know, a kind of a curated and leaner experience, then you don't yep. want to throw them into the throw them to the wolves and say, okay, figure all this stuff out on your own. You know, I'll be over here. But yeah. on the other hand, like you, as we were saying, if you want, if if you're expecting someone to go through this game and you know they're going to basically just fall through the game, like trying, failing, and succeeding all on their own, then you don't want that you know hour long press A to jump, use the left analog stick to move, press start button yeah. for the start menu. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, the introduction to Void Bastards has we we did tweak that quite a lot. So, uh, I, I think we're fairly safe to discuss basic spoilers in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but the game opens with a with a cold open, more or less, where you're in a ship, and and rather than uh, it's a safe space to learn because it's inconsequential, more or less, and it's mm-hmm. something that you only have to go through the first time you play. Uh, but it is a very short little opening chapter inconsequential because you're going to lose that character anyway they're going to die and rather than kind of do everything in regards to this is a first person shooter this is how you crouch this is how you run we try and focus mainly on what's unique to our game so one of the very first things and something which is pretty integral to it is how to use doors and it's a very very basic process but it's mainly here's how you open a door here's how you lock and unlock a door here's how you find items on your map uh go at it is more or less the intention behind it. Because after that, you're given, we seed the first 
couple of ships or we have like a couple of kind of basic ships which have parts which will help you build some of your very um, first items. But if you die while trying to do that, we open it up so you don't get the repetition of having to keep repeating that. So that was something that we originally had it so that if you died within the first four ships or whatever, you'd continually get jumped back to somewhere amongst that. And it fought against the design of the rest of the game completely. So that was something where we were like, we want to try and provide a nice introductory experience where we introduce enemies and the parts and the, the items that you're going to use. But if for whatever reason, while you're learning that process, you bounce off it, we're still going to provide those opportunities to you, but we're not going to make you repeat it because that's not what we're about. Um, and I think, I think that was a, that made a big difference to uh, new players getting introduced to the game. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me do a quick time check. We are probably hitting an hour and a half, not counting the pre-stream uh, craziness there. Um, yep. I do want to talk about some of the issues or some of the uh, things that have been kind of like bugging me about the game. I want to get your thoughts on them. Yep. And then I do want to kind of, we'll wrap up kind of talk about what you guys have planned next. You can reveal any teasers. Okay. But cool. I would say lengthwise, maybe another, I think, 10 to 15 minutes, and then we'll probably begin to wrap it up. Uh, okay. For the people watching us live right now, this will be kind of last call for any questions, if you have any for Dean. But uh, I guess for myself, um, I'm going through the game right now. Like As I said like beforehand, I am about I – I think I'm like near the tail end of things on hard difficulty. Yep. And like a few things that were kind of like bugging me or irking me a little bit. I kind of want to get your thoughts on them because I'm sure that they came up during the design process. Yep. And this was one that Mojo was talking about in chat earlier. That um, he was saying that the game started to feel a little bit repetitive going through the derelicts. Like we're not talking about like a five to ten minute, but like let's say you're playing this game in like an hour to like three hour long marathon session. That yep. it started to feel a little grindy in that regard. And this was I think goes back to what we were discussing earlier with regards to having a fixed layout versus a procedural one. And yep. I just want to get your like about like that challenge or like your thoughts on trying to avoid some of that repetitive nature, I think that can kind of settle in. Yeah, it's it's a tough tough one because it's a scope uh, aspect and it's a gameplay balancing yeah. aspect and things like that. Um, the way that we introduce content into the game is based on depth. So I think something that we we have seen with players is because it is up to the player as to where they're playing. Mm-hmm. Some people can, if you're going back depths and things like that, and you're not pressing forward you can actually find out that you're, you can maybe see more of a certain depth than you would have other depths and stuff like that. Because each depth is introducing new enemies, yep. new ships, new modules as well in each depth. And the hope as well at that point is that you'll have new weapons and things like that. Uh, but again, this is the random nature of things. If yep. And I've sometimes done that. I'll go back a depth. And so you might find that a player is actually, if you think of like their snapshot of what they're seeing of the game, they're kind of on a heat map. They're spending a lot of time in this one little spot. 
and then they might go go really quickly through the next two spots. Mm-hmm. So that that's definitely something where because there's that freedom to move around, people also have the freedom to linger, and and I think that's where some of the more obvious repetition that people find is if mm-hmm. yeah they're doing like one really big long session and they're more or less doing it all in the one bit and getting lots of upgrades they might not be seeing some of that different content because they're not moving around because um, we also have things like new hazards that come yeah. into it at depths um just lot every single depth is like another five or so systems that you have to get introduced to so mm-hmm. so yeah um, it is. It's definitely a challenge, um, and we've we've got a fairly small team, so we tried to focus in on where and a lot of the testing was about where people noticed and felt those differences and changes and appreciated them. So we tried to balance it like that. Mm-hmm. And talking about like moving around the map, one thing that I thought was kind of odd, I don't want to get your thoughts on, is the fact that you cannot go backwards on the star map. And I was just yeah. wondering, like, what was like the decision? To because I've had several cases where I would go forward, thinking I could kind of like scoot down to a ship, and it's like just on that edge, and it doesn't count, it's, so I miss the ship. It's just yeah, it just just might have read like it was parallel, yeah. but it was just behind you. It's yeah, it's that's a that's a tough one. I think that's uh just because it is such a it can be quite minor, mm-hmm. um, and we try and communicate that as much as possible. Uh, with the way that the star map grid works. But, I mean, the idea to to limit your backward travel was to continually push the player forward and give them new opportunities and, and focus on that rather than, again, further lingering in one space. Mm-hmm. But also to... Um, I mean, with the star map, there's also just a real decision fatigue that we were concerned with. I think at different points, we played around with having more or or fewer branches at different different sections and how dense that is. And this was kind of after a lot of testing that that um, sweet spot that we found. Uh, because, yeah, you, you want to give players, because there's a lot of, uh, for people who haven't played, there's a lot of non-ship options as well on yep. the star map. And so that they were really, that was a great thing when we got those in, because originally as well, we didn't have all of those in, in the earlier prototypes when we first got the star map working. And again, that just added more content and more, more choices, which both impacted your on-ship missions, as well as your out-of-ship crafting and, and just decision-making process. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of tweaking with that kind of thing, but it was about providing enough choice without too much choice i think was definitely what we found with the testing for that because yeah decision fatigue is a big one that um a game like this you've just got so much going on um you want to you want to make sure that um people are having fun yeah and uh going like down to like the ship level one of the other things i wanted to bring up is the general i guess gameplay of combat because I think this, I'm yep. sure this is a this has probably been a very polarizing point when coming out in the design process. Because as yep. we said, like Void Bastards, while it is a first person game and you are shooting, it's not really designed to be a first person shooter. Like as a very uh, good point of contrast, I'm playing Doom 2016 right now on stream. In between me yep. playing Void Bastards off recording, and I'm running to a kind yep. of a dissonance there what I can do, and. With Void Bastards, again, like, 
while you're able to fight enemies, like, a few things that kind of, like, annoyed me, like, from a, you know, pure first-person shooter standpoint, one was how easy it was for certain enemies to track you. Like, again, turrets are a very big point of that. Like, the second (laughs) you step out, they are going to hit you. Like, there is no amount of ducking and weaving that you can do to avoid that. Yep. And another yep. thing I found was that there's definitely a little bit of, like, weapon sway or, you know, like, your bullets will not always go exactly where your crosshair is. And that has led yeah, to got- <laughs> a few bits of trouble for me there. Yeah, we definitely have um, quite a bit of weapon bloom on certain mm-hmm. weapons in particular. Um, it's something which, as you upgrade certain weapons, it does get better mm-hmm. for them. Uh, so the pistol is a really good one, yeah. and it's also something which is tied to character traits. So you yeah. can get the sharpshooter, who if you if you really, I think so- someone because the the zapper is a good example of that. It's got quite a generous blue. Yes, uh, it's pretty pretty broad. And part of that was that weapon when we first implemented it, we had it very precise. I bet it was like it overpowered. Was there, it was so overpowered, mm-hmm. uh, so effective for for most things. And I think it also had more damage as well when we first had it. Um, it we, and so we wanted it to feel more like a... St- we still wanted to give it range, but we wanted the range to be a bit of a sacrifice. So that's why it had quite a generous bloom on it. Uh, but then also you can use the sharpshooter trait, character trait, and it kind of brings that focus in again for mm-hmm. um, quite a bit. So the bloom is definitely something where it's it's a... It's a system which allows us to manipulate and create difference between weapons. Uh, it's not, it isn't a kind of high precision first person shooter in general because it's also mm-hmm. relatively small, tight spaces yeah. compared to most shooters as well. Uh, it's presenting very different scenarios and interactions. Something like the, the gun points as well, their precision is again. It's a way to kind of differentiate the robots and stuff like that from a lot of the standard enemies. Because, like, mm-hmm. the standard janitor, you can actually sidestep their yeah. their shots pretty easily once you get, um, mm-hmm. once you read them. Uh, so, and the pirates as well are incredibly precise. Oh, yes. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was balanced. We kind of played around with, and that's something which between difficulties as well. So the lower the difficulty, the uh, the slower uh, gun points and security systems will actually lock onto you and respond to you. That's a difficulty aspect. Okay. Um, so hard, and if you haven't played Hard Bastard, uh, those those gun points are going to lock onto you within a couple of seconds. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's definitely something where we pushed and pulled and balanced it but in regards to as a shooter it's it's such a different uh pace to a game like doom as well uh we always knew that going into it mm-hmm. and we knew that what we were creating was was a different feel it's it's a bit more like we it's it's quite straightforward the way that we have um uh all of our shooting systems and stuff like that we wanted it to feel as snappy and responsive as possible uh mm-hmm. but some of what you'll see with new big fps's like doom which is like fast jumping off walls doing dashes ground slams all that <laughs> kind of stuff uh it it really i th- i think it uh shows that we've got this weird weird uh way to talk about shooters now because they're so different yeah. <laughs> and 
whilst they might be, have a gun and a first person perspective, the interactions and the movement and all that kind of stuff can be very, very different for very different purposes now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we definitely des- designed Void Bastards around uh, what worked for this type of game a little mm-hmm. bit more. But um, it is funny if you get a character who has high precision, uh, is very fast. And what's the other one? Oh, has sticky fingers. So they'll pick up any items oh, in the world. Yeah. You'll find the game <laughs> plays very, very differently because you're running around, you've got like a high precision weapon and you're just automatically picking up everything in the world. And that's more or less the quake mode. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess he- here's something I was wondering, Dean. We were talking about this uh, off recording in terms of like picking up like how players have been going through Void Bastards. But um, do you typically find somebody playing this game in, like, a very long, like, sit-down or in quick spurts? You know, like, maybe I'll turn it on, do three or four derelicts, and then turn it off? Or do you think they go, like, the long way? I'm going to sit and play this game for two, three hours in, like, one massive (laughs) session. I think it's very different for very different people. Uh, I think you definitely get a certain section when watching Twitch is amazing just for games now. Uh, I remember the first game I shipped was on PS2, so there was no concept of actually watching people play the game that you just released. Uh, and I think, yeah, Borderlands the pre-sequel was probably the first one where as soon as we launched, we were everyone in the office that day was able to log on and watch people play it on Twitch, which was fascinating. Uh, so watching people play it like that where there's people i mean i think it was the first day that we released we had or maybe the second day or something like that we had people trying to finish the entire game on stream of course (laughs) uh Mm -hmm. and there was one person who farbs had put up a challenge of uh finishing the game on hard bastard without dying so an iron man run of hard bastard Mm -hmm. and there was a poor poor soul who was trying to accomplish that And they eventually managed to do it after, I think it was 13 hours or something like that um, of straight play on on Twitch, which is a very exhausting challenge. Mm -hmm. But um, reading reading things like our Discord, uh, talking to the community, hearing from friends who have been playing and just seeing things like achievements as they've been rolling in from, from users, I think some people, of course, want to kind of bulldoze it in a weekend um they've got the time they sit down and that's kind of admittedly that's kind of how i play some games nowadays where i i only get kind of i might just dedicate one day on the weekend to it and then that's that's it it's a it's a good experience so some people are doing that but at the same time i can see quite a few people who who are using it as like their little their I don't know if you'd say relax game, but their little game that they're going back to maybe once a week or or kind of it's their Friday relax kind of thing. Um, and I think it works quite well for that. That's something where when we were developing it, uh, and it's the first game I've ever had this with, where on the weekend, and this, we had fairly complete build at this stage, most of the systems were in place. And on the weekend, I was sitting down poured myself a beer and I was going to play some Overwatch and I was like actually I'll play some Void Bastards which 
is kind of weird when you've been working on a game for a couple <laughs> of years and you decide that you want to play some of it on your weekend. But it was because it scratched that itch for me of wanting to sit down and play something for an hour with lots of small little intervals in it, which is more or less the experience I was getting from Overwatch of just going into random matches and doing on-the-spot decision-making, things like that. That was exactly what I was going to get out of Void Bastards, and I sat down and played that instead. So, yeah, I think it comes down to the people. Um, the self-selecting vocal fans of the game are generally going to be putting in a lot more direct hours into it, but I, I definitely can see quite a few people who have, since we've released, because we only came out on the 29th of May, mm-hmm. there's quite a few people who have just kind of been dipping their toes in 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 and out of it at different times and it's the type of game where there's so many intervals and breaks it allows you to do that and you're not going to kind of interrupt something and then be completely lost as to where you are in the game mm-hmm. a week later or two weeks later so which I, it's just something i like yeah. um because some of us are time poor some of us don't have time to mm-hmm. spend <laughs> on these titles the number of rpgs and things like that that i've come back to after a week and just given up is yeah <laughs> yeah of oh, for sure i've done the same thing like like for some of those games i will like erase like 50 60 hour long save files because i have yeah. like no idea what the hell i'm doing anymore in that game yeah yeah it's uh the worst ones i've found is where i've sunk maybe yeah 20 hours into something mm-hmm. and i'll load it up and i'll i'll kind of look at my watch and i'm like i've got an hour to play a game I'll, i really like this game i've already put all this time into it but I might not have played it for a couple of months. And I sit down and by the time my hour is up of mm-hmm. what I've allocated myself to play, I'm like, okay, now I am re- Now I know where I'm up to. Now I remember what I was doing. <laughs> and it's like, all right, well, that was great. And I'll <laughs> do that again in a couple of months to just reacquaint myself with what the hell I'm doing and mm. uh, not actually play any game. So. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, let me see. I'm trying to think if there's any other points. I do have a few things about, like, what's the future. Um, I guess yep. with regards to, like, Void Bastards from a design or development standpoint, are there – I know we've been talking for, it seems like, a very long time. Are there any aspects that we didn't touch on that you would like to bring up? Um, I'm not sure. I mean – it's been a very unique experience for me just because the structure of the team is very different. Um, it's been fun because it is a very experienced team. Everyone kind of knows what they're doing. Everyone has worked in producer and kind of lead roles in the past. So everyone's got a very clear idea as to what's required to, to ship a game. So it's been a relatively, for getting a game released, relatively smooth process. And it's been... Um, in terms, we had our first patch we released last week, uh, which was more or less a week after we launched, I think it ended up being. Mm-hmm. And just the entire process that we've had around it has been uh, <laughs> very smooth. <laughs> As always. <laughs> which, uh, which is nice. Yeah, smooth is not something we normally hear when it comes to game development, unfortunately. No, no. I think there's, there's definitely a benefit to when you count up the years of experience mm-hmm. on the team. Uh, makes makes that stuff a little bit easier. So, mm-hmm. um, I guess like one thing, like one other like complaint I had that I think will actually be a good segue into talking about what's coming next, or if you guys yep. are working on anything next, it comes down to, I guess again, like 
it started to feel like just do like the limited number of actions that you had in the world it started to feel like a little repetitive for me again like i'm talking about saying they were playing for like two to three hour long uh, marathons i'm not playing like yeah yeah like it got to the point where like i knew like ahead of the time okay if i see zek and taurus i'm gonna bring x y and z if i see um janitor and spook it's a c e and f and like yep it started to get to that point where, and this is what we were talking about earlier in terms of procedural, good versus bad procedural, that it began to feel like I was just going through the motions, in a sense, of each ship. And I know, like, you guys, I'm sure you guys have been thinking about any kind of post-release support or, you know, content to come. But I guess, like, when I say, like, like... I guess, how did you guys, like, again, we've talked about this, again, multiple times on this cast, but trying to fight that repetitive nature of a game like this. Because as we've said, this is a game that's designed around, like, again, five to ten minutes of very focused gameplay. You have the downtime. Then another five to ten minutes of focus, more downtime. Yeah, I think um, where where it really... the interesting quality to it is the strategy aspect. So when you're going in where we find that there is that secondary level of variation, once you've found a confident strategy that you might be falling back to, um, that's one of the things I was talking about of the staying hungry idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So when, when you're forced into situations that you otherwise would maybe choose not to, and this is something which comes into it, I think, a bit more based on difficulty. Uh, and it's something where if you're playing really safe or strategically, um, you can sometimes just give yourself more options. So you end up being able to repeat certain techniques, whereas if you're kind of challenging yourself a little bit more, sometimes you don't have that capacity. You just don't have ammo for that weapon that you would maybe use in that scenario. Um, but for the most part, it really was... Uh, trying to balance and trying to introduce new ideas at different different stages, um, new ships and, and new enemies. Um, but, yeah, ongoing, we're looking at more content as well that we're going to be introducing. We haven't announced anything yet, um, but after our patches and, and kind of quality of life uh, updates that we're doing, we're looking at some other, other ways to adjust that. And it's already something where in the game when you've got the challenge modes, mm-hmm part of that has been adjusting how the player approaches things like weapons. Do you, How does the game play when you uh, can't build a certain weapon type? Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a strategy for that? One of the really uh, difficult modes that we have, mm-hmm. which is the hardest one to unlock, is the Foon mode, <laughs> if you've seen that one, which is where you only have one weapon, which is a melee weapon, and it's a Foon. <laughs> and... Uh, it's a tough mode because, yeah, you kind of you can get a backstab, you can get an insta kill on enemies, but you have to sneak up on them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's definitely as a systemic game, the beauty of it is there's all these little knobs and things like that, that you can twist and adjust to change that play experience. Yeah, and uh, for people who don't know, the Foon is, I guess, the sister to the Spork. <laughs> yes, the the Fork Spoon. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh funnily enough we we uh i think we were originally looking at having spork mm-hmm. 
Uh, it seemed that that term was trademarked uh. when we were in development. And Foon was the non-trademarked version. Funnily enough, I think it was about a day or two days prior to release, the trademark for Spork ran oh. out. So, But I think uh, we're much bigger fans of the term Foon anyway. So, um, <laughs> it's good fun. All right. Yeah, like... um. By the time this goes up recorded, I should have my review and probably a video up on Void Bastards. And one of the things oh. I was thinking about in terms of like what I would like to see, and again, you know, I'm not you don't have to say you don't have to reveal anything big, <laughs> but I would love to see like more supplemental content, more things to branch out or flesh out the derelicts, more options I can play during each in again, during as we said, that focus kind of gameplay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll see. There's going to be, not sure when we're going to be discussing it, but there's definitely stuff that we're already uh, already working on, and stuff that I'm going to be getting to work on as soon as I'm done here. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, um, actually, one final question. I know I always say this a lot for people who watch these casts, but I, I almost forgot. You mentioned, of course, the different challenge modes, the different modifiers, things like that. And of course, Iron Man. What was the decision to have them locked behind game completion versus having them unlocked at the start? Um, I think the main main aspect to that is just to prevent confusion for new okay. players. Um, to to let people, because I think as much as people might want to go in with an Iron Man mode to start with. Uh, it does remove aspects of the game, um, so it it's a challenge, but it's a challenge which kind of works as a new game plus kind of experience. I think a little bit more. Um, so yeah, we, we've got it in there. There's there's ways that people can just unlock it if they want to, um, but I think um, I think there's there's a certain tradition to that. I think we we spoke briefly about it on the team as to if we wanted to have that stuff just default there and it might be something where after the game's been out for a while maybe we change that but i think um mm-hmm. i think the the game's designed around a certain couple of options or a couple of playing modes and then we wanted the difficulty for that so that was the original focus all right because the rest of it is is supplemental content more or mm-hmm. less and yeah um, as as surprised as I am to see how certain people are challenging themselves, um, yeah, it's it's for different people, uh, I think, and even seeing people do the speed run side of it is um, very interesting. So, all right. Well, again, I could we could sit here and chat <laughs> for <laughs> yep. m- the rest of my night, the rest of your morning, but. Yep. Uh, Dean, it has been a pleasure talking with you, as well as for Farb, uh, for Farbs, if he's watching this right yeah. now, live or recorded. Yeah. Again, yeah. sorry about the uh, again the technical issues with streaming on the wrong platform or what no I'm normally on, but it has been a pleasure. And again, like very big fan of the designs you guys do with Blue Man Chew. I was a big fan of Card Hunter. And definitely excited to see what comes next with Void Bastards and, again, whatever else you guys have up your sleeves after that. Yep. No, thank you very much. All right. But uh, if you wouldn't mind hanging on Discord for, like, 30 seconds just to go, like, if you post-stream stuff. But 
Yep. Other than that, we're going to end things here. For those of you watching this live, thank you for tuning in to, again, like we're in the wrong locale here. Ideally, we'll be back on YouTube later this evening for regular game coverage. But for everybody, uh, be sure to in for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where he's in the RN science of games. I have completely ran out of drinks, as I said in chat. I ran about 40 minutes ago. <laughs> I didn't prepare, <laughs> keeping in yeah. line with white bastards here. But if you are a developer who would like to come on for a chat about game design, your own title, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of this talk, be sure to check out patreon.com slash but uh, for you, Dean, are there any social media or links or anything we'd like to mention before we say goodnight? Uh, yeah, I think the easiest one for us is just our website, which is voidbastards.com. The beauty of having a unique name like Void Bastards is yeah. you can get the domain. <laughs> uh, but on that website, it's got links to our Twitter, our Discord, and the Steam store page, and more or less everything related to Void Bastards. So, yeah, voidbastards.com is the easiest. Alright, and I should have a link to that in the description below for those of you watching this recorded. But, fantastic! I think that is going to do it. So before this becomes like a cross-time chat for both of us here, we yep. will end things, but if you or Forbes or anyone else from Blue Manchu is interested in the future, come back on. It'll be great to have yep. you guys back. Fantastic. I, th I think we'd love it. So, thank you. All right. So with all that said, everybody, once again, thanks for tuning in. Come back for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where some of the art and science of games. Until our next stream, have a great morning or evening, depending where you are in the world. All right. And...